0: The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome. To the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I am so glad to have you on board for this episode. We are gonna to go to some really interesting places with Jason Pfeiffer. He is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And this episode is brought to you by Leader. You can check out Leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com to find out how you can better engage and grow your team today. Mention the promo code Cary, C-A-R-E-Y, you'll get 20% off your first year. And by Overflow, Do you know that stock donations provide the greatest return for your church or nonprofit? You can go to overflow.co, that's .co, slash carry, to learn more about year-end pricing and download their free stock giving guide for your church. Well, Jason Pfeiffer is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. He is a startup advisor. He's host of the podcast Build for Tomorrow and also the podcast called Problem Solvers. And he's taught techniques for adapting to change at companies including Pfizer, Microsoft, Chipotle, DraftKings, and Wix. He's also worked as an editor at Fast Company, Men's Health, and Boston Magazine. And yeah, believe it or not, We're gonna go there, we're gonna talk about why is he still in the magazine business? But more importantly, uh, we are going to talk about how to find a future even if you're in a declining industry, how to tell if your entrepreneurial idea is a winner. He has profiled entrepreneurs for almost a decade, and also the latest, his take on hybrid work versus return to the office. This is an episode about the future, one of my favorite subjects to talk about again and again. If you're new to the podcast, hey, we cover that on a regular basis. And if you are listening for the first time, maybe you want to subscribe. Join the growing number of people who listen to this podcast every month. We want to bring you the very best in guests. Just wait till you hear the 2023 lineup at the end of the show. And we also want to help you with some very practical, practical help. your leadership. So anybody here struggle with managing too many platforms and systems that actually take away from your productivity? You're always toggling between this app and that app. Well, my friends at Leader have created a one-stop shop for all things people-focused For that very reason, they are the first ever people development software that helps you manage everything from leadership development to core HR and health plans all in one platform. So how do you stop shuffling through disconnected systems and get time back in your day so you can actually care for your team? Well, the answer is Leader. Leader will help you develop leaders at scale with consistent one-on-one meetings, clear goals, regular feedback, better performance reviews, and a lot more. So you can check out Leader.com to find out how you can engage and grow your team today. Mention promo code CARRY. You'll get 20% off your first year. That's L-E-A-D-R.com. And use the promo code CARRY, C-A-R-E-Y, to get 20% off your first year. Have you ever thought nobody ever gives us like significant donations? And maybe that's because nobody gives you stock. Well, there's a huge misconception about the giving space today. Your donors actually want to give you more. Uh, and they want to give stock because it's the most tax efficient way to give. They just don't want to jump through the hoops to do so. Well, Overflow is online software that empowers donors to easily give stock donations to churches and nonprofits, and it only takes minutes, not months. You see, 90% of US wealth is in non cash assets like stock, and churches that only accept cash donations, well, You've got a generosity gap, and Overflow is here to help you bridge it. So the average cash donation in the U.S. is $128, but the average stock donation through Overflow is is over $10,000. You can unlock more giving channels this season. Visit overflow.co. That's overflow.co slash carry. And you will learn more about year-end pricing and you can download their free stock giving guide. That's overflow.co slash carry. Well, wherever you find yourself, I'm so glad you're listening. And now my conversation with Jason Pfeiffer. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, it's great. So, you're editor of Entrepreneur Magazine as an occasional reader of that. I really appreciate what you do. You, you obviously profile entrepreneurs left, right, and center. And I'd love to start on a broader level. What are some of the differences you've seen between entrepreneurs who make it and businesses that fail? Because, like, You know, it's something like 70% of all businesses, I don't know if that's apocryphal or true, fail in the first five years. Similar stat for church plants. Like there's just a lot of failure going on. So (laughs) what are some of the broad stroke differences you you see between the successes and those that don't make it?
1: You know, I I think actually you teed up the answer really nicely by bringing up that stat. So the stat, which I I may butcher a little bit uh, off the top of my head, but I believe that it is that 50% of businesses do not survive past the first four or five years. But here's the thing. People often take that statistic and they say, well, that means that 50% failed. Um, But that's not true because, first of all, just because something didn't last longer than some arbitrary amount of time... Doesn't mean that it didn't succeed in what it set out to do. And and actually, so the statistic comes from the Census Bureau and they um did they surveyed and found that there's some pretty decent percentage. I think it might have been a third of the people who who folded up shop uh, in that time period. Had actually accomplished their mission, whatever it was. You know, they had set out to to build something for some amount of time, and it worked. And then, and then maybe they fo- they closed it because it was done, or they sold it, or they passed it along. Whatever it was, it had it had succeeded, really. Uh, but we only see it as failure because we're measuring success in one limited way. And then, also really important is to, is to know, and this is not in the data because it would be just so hard to track. But just because a business fails does not mean that the person behind the business failed mm. right that's an important distinction um, because you really i mean when we operate in the world of uh you know of, of businesses and and i you know i i know much less about the world of churches but i i would imagine this to be true is that sometimes the act of Building something, even if it doesn't quite work out, will teach you exactly what you need to know to be successful the next time. Mm. And that oftentimes the great success actually comes directly out of the thing that failed, whether that is because the thing that failed drove you to meet somebody who became a great partner or gave you an idea for something else. You know, very famously, uh Stuart Butterfield was running a, a failed video game company and then said, you know, the chat functionality inside of this video game is pretty useful. Maybe that is a product by itself. And that became Slack. Yeah. And, and so, like, I, I think that the difference, to go back to your original question, yeah. um, of of what either drives success or, or drives what I would say is true failure is... I think the right kind of persistence, mm-hmm. um, the wrong kind of persistence is to say, you know, I started this thing and I will be devoted to it until the end of days. And uh, Because sometimes you actually need to walk away from something. You need to say, you know what, what I've built here doesn't really work, but I am now first in line to have a better idea of what will work. And it is that adaptability and that willingness to rethink to be wrong, to know that what you were doing is simply setting you up for something that comes next rather than is something that just needs to be protected at all costs. That is the thing that I think ultimately drives success.
0: That's a really helpful clarification. And I guess I have to do some due diligence on that church planting stat too and, <laughs> and drive a little. But it's funny how so many things get accepted as axiomatic that maybe are not true. And I think I think you're right. I mean, Abraham Lincoln would be considered to be a failure up until the very twilight of his life. I mean, just yeah. tried so many things that didn't work out, didn't get election, was not very popular, and then changed his history. It's amazing, yeah. right? What was it? One of my favorite quotes is Winston Churchill. Success is moving from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm.
1: It's a <laughs> That's quote. a great quote. <laughs> it is right. a great and, quote. And, I th- and, and this, again, I'm probably going to have it a little bit wrong, but I think that Thomas, is a, somebody, the story goes that, as Thomas Edison was trying and and at that point failing to invent the light bulb uh, or the first commercially viable light bulb, that um, that somebody asked him if if he felt like he had wasted his time, and he said, "No, I figured out uh, ten thousand ways it doesn't work," uh, which is which is useful. Um, right, and uh, and and we should be we should be really mindful that you know it often comes down to how do we define success, right? Because. We are often—I mean, we don't do this intentionally—but if you step back and think of it, we are often defining success based on someone else's definition of success. So, if I, you know, if I release a book, uh, as I did uh, this book, Build for Tomorrow, um, which I will—I will tell you, uh, you know, to my at least mild disappointment, was not a number one to- uh, New York Times bestseller. Yeah. But, um, but that—that that really is only a disappointment if—if um, if I decided. That that was the definition of success, right? It is other people's definition of success. There are certainly plenty of people who um, you know, who, who release a book purely for the purpose of having it hit the top of the bestseller list. And if it didn't do that, it's not a success. But that's their definition. It doesn't have to be mine. And um, and I think that the more that we are really mindful of how we are defining success for ourselves. The more we do not get discouraged when we are not meeting someone else's expectations. Hmm. No, that's a really
0: good framing. You know, I was listening to an interview just recently, the latest one with Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin, and Seth's been on the show a couple of times. But what I didn't know about Seth is, uh, you know, he hit a number one New York Times bestseller and he goes, well, that's it. I'll never match that again. Mm. And then he subsequently released other books, many of which have gone on to do well, but one of which sold like 14,000 copies, which is, you know, not way better than most books. But when you're number one on the New York Times list, um, that's disappointing. And thank goodness Seth kept going. Thank goodness he didn't quit. So on that note, like how, do you have a framework that you see in entrepreneurs um, who are wisely able to call when an idea is a bad one and you need to shut it down and run away? Or, hey, we're just, you know, moments away from our critical breakthrough. Because I think that can be
1: a hard line. Sometimes you're, you know, riding a dead horse. That's what you're doing. It's it's an incredibly hard line. and. Yeah. And and I th- it's funny. I was just yesterday. I was having breakfast with some executives at TechStars, and we were talking about exactly this because it's something that founders and I think anybody grapples with all the time. And here's why: because there is a selection bias happening in the stories that you hear, because Oof. you know, for for somebody. If you hear somebody on a podcast, if you if you read their book, if whatever, then they they went through some setbacks and I hope that they're able to honestly talk about them, but um their perseverance led to their success. And so the lesson that they will often have to offer you is persevere. Grit stick with it. You know, I, I, how many times have I heard, and frankly published, because at Entrepreneur Magazine, I have that power, published stories from people who, you know, who say, uh, 100 investors told me no, and I, I just kept going, and then I finally reached success. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't hear from all the people who heard no from 100 investors, and those investors were right. Like, you don't, you, know, you don't hear <laughs> that story, so yeah. And, but you should, because huh? the the problem is that is that look, you yes, persevere, but per, but know what you are persevering on. Like know what the project is, and sometimes the project is the thing that you're building. Sometimes the project is you, and the thing that you're building um, is it has an expiration date, but it will teach you something that will help. You build your next thing, and how do you know the difference between the two? I actually just had a conversation with this, or about this, with a woman named Annie Duke, who wrote a book called Quit. It just came out; it's very good. Mm. And uh, she's a she's she, you know her she, her area of study is how people make decisions. And um, and she said she said, well, I mean, she said a lot of great things, but two that I'll share with you right now to answer that question. Number one, she said, uh. It's really helpful to think of everything that we do this way. What would happen if the first person you dated had to be the person you marry? Uh, you know, if great question. Yeah, right. Because divorce. divorce. <laughs> divorce. Right. Well, yeah, 100 yeah, percent. But, but yeah. also not a lot of dating, right? Like right. That, not a lot of dating, not a lot of trying, um, not a lot of exploring, not a lot of figuring out what you need, because you'd be terrified. Because the first date you go on has you gotta lock it in. And so um the reason why we are able to hopefully find the right person for us is because we can quit a lot of other relationships first. And um, and, and so Annie says, look, we are dating ideas, we are dating uh, pursuits, we are dating concepts we are dating businesses we are dating churches we have to we have to make sure that we leave open the possibility that we have to walk away from this because sticking with something that does not work is robbing you of time that you could devote to something that does work and so how do you know i asked her and she said well look one of the best things to do is um i think she called it i could have this wrong but i think she called it a kill criteria which is basically set some set some benchmarks you know, in six months, it should be looking like this. In nine months, we should have this kind of growth. If we don't, I need to seriously consider the possibility that this doesn't work, Um, right? Work towards something and then see if you can hit it or not. And then be very honest about what that means. Yeah, that's good advice. And you know, it's funny, as as
0: we're talking, I'd mentioned Seth Godin. I've asked him that question on this podcast. And I'm pretty sure his answer was a variation on his minimal viable audience. Like tell 10 friends, and if it goes nowhere and they don't tell anybody, that's a clue. And just see how your idea spreads, right? But a lot of us, it's like, I got the idea that's going to change the world. And then 10 years later, you know, nothing, nothing's happened. Yeah. Super helpful. By the way, I loved your book. I thought it was great. And, uh, you know, you and I read a lot of books for our living. That's what we do. And I was shocked at how many Stories in your book, I just never heard of because I've read not, you know, vociferously, but fairly widely. And often it's like, oh, yeah, I know that story. Oh, yeah, I know that story. (laughs) (laughs) I did not run into too many familiar stories in your book. And they were fascinating, like historical examples of ideas that didn't work or ideas that didn't catch on or entrepreneurs that made it. You were not pulling from the stereotypes. Can you talk about your research for that? Because I thought it was really intriguing.
1: Yeah. That I really, I, I am so um, grateful that you said that uh, because it was something that I, I care deeply about. Yeah. Um, you know, as a guy, my background is, is media. You know, I mean, I, I, I was a, I was a, I started as a local newspaper reporter, like community news. And eventually I got into magazines and I made my way through the national magazine world and and then landed at Entrepreneur. But as a result, you know, my, my programming is, is to, is for originality. Um, I want to make sure that I'm offering something that people haven't seen before. You know, we don't publish pre- like we don't publish stories in Entrepreneur magazine that have already been published elsewhere. What would be the point? Everything's got to be fresh and new, and and that's how I see everything that I do. So you know, I, the, the the problem. And I'm not knocking people. Everyone has a different profession, but um, you know, a lot of the books that you read out there are not written by people who are in the business of making media. And therefore, um, they're not interviewing people. You know? <laughs> they're, they're kind of working off of what I, you know, sort of existing information. And I, I don't care that much about existing information. So, um, so what I have, what I do is, um, is I, I talk to people all the time, uh, and, and I find a million different reasons and opportunities to, now it's easy for me because I have a magazine that I edit. So I'm talking to people for that and for the podcast that I host and, uh, for all sorts of reasons, interview people on stage. And, uh, and I, I just sort of compile these stories. I, 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 tend to filter, and I think this is useful for anybody, not just, you know, in my kind of rarefied space, but, um, you know, the things that connect with others are gonna be the things that resonate with you. Mm-hmm. So if, if you find that somebody said something and you just wanna repeat it to other people, and then you do repeat it to other people and they react to it, um, that's a pretty good indication that you've got some really good insight. and you should you should refine it and think more about it and tell that story again and again and again. It will get better over time because you'll find the new beats and you'll see somebody react to it. And maybe sometimes you'll bring their reaction into the way that you tell the story next time. And that's what I do. the 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 book is really the product of years and years worth of interviewing people and um and then refining those stories over time and then figuring out how to string them together. i I will tell you, Look, it doesn't matter if you're in media or not, and I understand that almost nobody listening to this is in media, but um, but you should feel empowered to go ask other people questions. Mm. Um, I get my best stuff because I am curious about something, and then I find someone who is very thoughtful about it. Like right, like the reason why, the reason why I, ha- I have all these stories from history and about how people navigated or resisted changes throughout history, um, the reason why those are so interesting, I will tell you, is because I got very curious about some random thing. I maybe I, maybe I saw something. Maybe I saw that there was a national moral crisis over teddy bears in 1907, and I wondered, what is that? <laughs> like, and I, you know, and you can find a little bit written about it, but not a lot. And so, well, you know what? The only way to really know it is to just go call people who know these things. And the thing is that there's somebody out there who who has thought a lot about any single subject that you are curious about, and they are dying to talk to you about it because they don't get asked about it very often. <laughs> it doesn't come up and at Christmas. No. Tell me about the teddy bear
0: crisis of 1907 <laughs> right.
1: history, prof. Nope. Right. Nope. They don't care. But, but because that person spent a lot of time studying that, they are thrilled that anybody else cares about it. And so, you know, whenever I have a curiosity about anything, I, I just, I just reach out. Even if I don't know what the project is, I'll email somebody and I'll say, Hey, you know, I, hello, li- linguistics professor. Um, you know, I, I was talking to my in-laws and we were, uh, you know, I don't know if you, I don't know if this is a word that's going to be familiar to a, um, to a, a churchgoing audience. Cause it's a, it's a Yiddish word, but, uh, you know, I'm Jewish. And, um, uh, there's this word machatunim. You know what that is? Have you ever heard of that? I do not.
0: I never did take Hebrew, but <laughs> yeah. a lot of people listening to this may have. So you may have may have struck a vein there. Okay.
1: Well, yeah, go so, ahead. So for those who don't know, so machatunim is a it's a well it's Yiddish. Um, and uh, anyway, it is a word that does not exist in English. It, it is a it is the description of the relationship between in laws. So for example, my parents and my wife's parents are machatunim. Right? We don't have a word for that in English. No, we need a word for that. Yeah, well, we do. We do. I mean, we have lachatonum. I guess people could pick it up, but um <laughs> but you know, I years ago, um, I can't remember, we were just talking with family, and my both my parents and my wife's parents like using that word. And we realized nothing like this exists in English, and then I wondered why. And uh so you know, it could end there or I could just go Googling around and find a linguistics professor who who I think would have an answer and drop him a line, which is exactly what I did. And, uh, and I kind of gave a fascinating answer. And that fascinating answer turned into, I can't even remember, I wrote some article about it and did some other thing. Like, just reach out. If you have a question, reach out. You will get better information than 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 you will just find on the internet.
0: And you know what? Professors almost always answer back. And their emails are public. If you can yes. find out where they teach go onto the website. That's how I've gotten a number of guests, including some legends on -hmm. this podcast. It's like a little bit of Googling, reach out directly. And I can't think of one that didn't respond. That's incredible advice. Yeah. Well, hats off to you because I read a couple of books a week with what I do on average. And this one really grabbed me and I'm like getting a physical copy. So (laughs) uh, it's really, really good. So, you know, the heart of the book is you see four traits in successful entrepreneurs who embrace change. And it's kind of a change management uh, guide, which I think Mm -hmm. is excellent and deeply needed in the area that I work. Um, Can you outline those traits? Just give us the broad strokes outline of what you see.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's not trade so much as phases, but the, phases, um, sure. right. So, the, the, what I argue is that all change happens in four phases for everybody uh, panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back being that moment where you say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. Mm-hmm. And I, I really want to stress that this is what everybody goes through because there are people, you know them, maybe you are them, who um, seem to roll really well with the punches. Something changes and they're just on to the next thing. Uh, And then there are other people who just really struggle with it. And what I have found in, in spending years and years talking with people who are both good and bad at this is that even the ones who are really good at it, they panic, but the thing is, that the more you go through this, and the better you get at adapting, the more you move forward with a faith that a wouldn't go back moment is available to you. Mm-hmm. And if you know that to be true, because you've experienced it enough before, you're able to move through the panic faster, or you utilize the panic in a different way. It stops being a thing that holds you back, and it starts being a thing that that fuels you. In which you, you know, you. I mean, it's the difference between thinking. Oh no! I'm going to lose everything, and oh no! Like there's a great opportunity in front of me, and I haven't figured out what it is yet. Uh, I, I try to, I try uh, whenever this happens to me to to always try to think of it in that second way, right? Like mm. there is, there's something here. It's almost it's like in the room with me, and I just can't see it right now, and it's really frustrating, right? But that is that's a better problem to have than than the problem of um uh, you know i used to do this i no longer have access to it i i mourn it and and cannot imagine life without it um i find that the people who are most adaptable and therefore the most successful are the ones who are just simply moving through these phases faster
0: mm, okay That is super helpful to know because your life kind of flashes before your eyes. There is the surprise of, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't working anymore, or how come this used to work? So one of the things you talk about is disruption and crisis. And I'd love to know, you know, how you see that crisis as being a seedbed for innovation. So, you know, surprise, surprise, three years ago, we all hit a crisis. People responded differently. But we're going to hit crises again. We're going to hit personal crisis, organizational crisis, societal crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So looking back on it, um, what do the people who adapt faster, how do they move through those phases when crisis hits? Like, what are some of the trends you
1: see? So I think one of the first things that they remember that other people forget is that they're not the only ones going through it, uh, right? We, crisis, is a, crisis can be a funny thing, right? I mean, like years ago, right, we went all went through the same crisis at the same time. Uh, we were aware, this is not breaking news, we were aware that everyone was going through this. But a lot of us were very focused, rightfully so, on our own experience of it. What is this going to mean singularly for me? The, the oversight there is that when you are going through a crisis, other people are going through a crisis. And if other people are going through a crisis, other people need something. They need True. new things. And perhaps the people who used to solve their problems are no longer able to. Um... Or maybe they can't afford the solutions that they had before. And this is the kind of moment when incumbents fall, you know? Um, Incumbents fall because they're not built for rapid change because they had a solution that is no longer relevant. And what I find is that the people who are most successful during a moment of crisis are starting to think, you know what, let me put aside my own needs for a second and start to focus on what other people need. Because if I can figure that out, then I know how to be relevant right now. Uh, I know how to be useful. You know, I mean, I, I I think it was the, the winners in today, in, in today's economy right now are the ones who in March, April, May of 2020 said, all right, uh, Everything we planned is on hold. I don't care if we make any money off of the thing that we do next, but we better make sure that people feel like we care about them. Uh, and, um, and so if that means that we're going to give away our product for free, then let's do it. If that means that we just got to start like giving them every possible incentive and gift so that they come use us as soon as they can, or whenever it's safe to do so or whatever, then let's do that. Um, let's keep spending. Let's take care of our people. Let's not lay everybody off right now because you know what, we're going to need them as soon as we figure out how to be useful in this moment. Um, right. I mean, like, you, know, you want to know why your your flights have been canceled uh, for for the last like two years, and it's it's so frustrating to fly around. The answer is because the airlines dumped all their staff, and then they weren't <laughs> those people weren't around to scale up when travel came back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I I think when people understand that they are not the only ones going through crisis, they start to make plans based on how to be useful to others, which is ultimately the the greatest thing that we all can do. I mean, I, you know, I, I, again, I, you know, I know the business world a lot better than I know the church world, but I would imagine that this is a unifying theme be- between them, and um, and so uh, and so we need to remember that, and we need to start plotting it out, and we need to be in touch with the people that we serve, and understand what they need. Not yesterday, now. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny.
0: You know, that's that's an incredibly. Clarifying lens, and you're right, there are a few groups or organizations that did that spectacularly well. And you're right, they helped a lot of people. They got ahead. When you look back at history, uh, because you have so many interesting stories in the book, can you think of one or two parallel examples from another era or time?
1: Mm, in which somebody stepped up to... Yeah, yeah. To there was a
0: crisis, couldn't happen. There was innovation. Uh. If oh, it that's doesn't really, come to mind, no yeah, way.
1: that's really interesting. You know, it's funny that I mean that. I, 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 my, my, my starting point was thinking about what you know what what is something that came out of the 1800s, but, um, but actually, I think maybe a better example is is something from much more recent history, which was, um, you know, one of the greatest companies to come out of the previous economic crisis, which would have been the recession of 0809. Uh, was Airbnb, uh, you know? And um, and Airbnb, I think, came out of a shifting need and expectation. And I mean, it was, this was, a- Airbnb came out of people's willingness in a moment of crisis to reconsider the impossible. Hmm. The idea of uh, renting out space in your home which is how it started right i mean now people have entire homes that they just rent out but back then it was like rooms you know it was like it was like your guest room surfing. or your basement yeah. yeah um and uh the idea of just opening that to the public market and letting someone come in and stay with you would it was insane nobody would have ever done that uh and 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 also on the traveler side i, I mean the idea that i would travel to a city and then stay in someone's guest room that doesn't make any sense uh, but um but then suddenly there was a crisis. people um, people needed cheaper travel options and they wanted to make money however they could, uh, which meant monetizing things that previously weren't just not monetizable but nobody even thought to monetize um and out of that moment came a new way to think about hospitality and it, it has evolved since, but it it was born of... Uh, I, 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 I talked to this guy named Brian Berkey, who's a business studies and legal ethics professor at Wharton, and he said that a moment of crisis forces us to shift the window on the options we are willing collectively to take seriously, and that is what we saw. We saw people shift the window. There was a window in which we said this is what hospitality looks like this is what travel looks like this is what hotels look like we were now willing to shift that window because what existed in the window before didn't work anymore and that that is what you can see throughout time i mean you know some of our some of our greatest greatest ideas are, you know great greatest i, I the um uh a, a, a previous pandemic i can't remember which one um uh i mean not prior to covid i mean like possibly prior to the yes Prior to the 1918 um, Spanish flu, uh, gave us public parks, uh, right? Because, uh, because um, you know, people didn't have the idea was it was every, people understood that they needed to be outdoors, but urban environments didn't really provide a lot of spaces for people to be outdoors, uh, outside of just being on a street, you know, on a crowded street, and um, and so uh, out of that came an awareness that that cities need large public spaces. And uh, we got large public parks as a result. Uh, You know, wherever you look throughout history and you find a crisis, you will find new ideas that take hold.
0: So, one of the challenges for church leaders in particular is obviously we lost access to our buildings, and so did leaders of other faiths as well, right? Everybody lost access to their buildings. Yep. And at first, I was greatly encouraged. Something like 30% of churches were online prior to the pandemic. Then it spiked to like 95% of churches. But then, as soon as uh, a lot, not all, but a lot of churches got access to their building again, they shifted away from innovation and mm-hmm. adaptation and back to the status quo, almost to the point where in 2022, there were leaders who are like, well, we're going to shut down or downplay the stream because we want everybody back in the building. And of course, you know, church attendance has been in a free fall for decades now. But I'm wondering from the outside looking in, like any comments to church leaders who might find that online ministry is a threat or that old methods, which weren't necessarily working before the pandemic, might be the easiest and most painless route to follow post pandemic?
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. I mean, look, the starting point has to be this. There's no one way to do something. And um and 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 I I understand that and I imagine that if I was debating um a church leader who wanted to get everybody back in, that they would say, and perhaps very rightfully so, they would say that um the best experience uh for the individual for the community is in person. Um how do we know that? Because we've seen it with our own two eyes, but also because that's how it's been for thousands of years. And um and I'm not here to dispute any of that. That's probably true. But uh you know, I I I think there's a I think the the phrase facts on the ground comes out of the military, but I I like using it a lot. Like what are the facts on the ground here, right? And if the facts on the ground are that it's very hard to get people to show up in person to something anymore, and if church attendance is dropping, then the solution cannot be to just continue to try to get people to show up in the building. Um, I mean, like, I'm not saying Mm. to abandon that. Don't abandon it. But it can't be the only solution because you have the information. You have the facts on the ground. And so we need to start thinking about what else do people need and what do they need now? You know the the most important thing really is to make sure that you are serving other people's needs rather than they are serving your needs, and um, and it could be that your needs are that you know that the best way to provide the you know the kind of services and ministry that you do is uh, is to have everybody in person. Well, th- those are your needs. Uh, it's very you know similar similar in thinking. Is I remember I was I was speaking to a. The group that w- that had been brought together to kind of workshop the future of work, and we were talking about how managers really want people uh, back in the office, and how um, you know the the common line here is well that's because uh, that's because that's how managers are able to um, maintain their authority uh, because you know a manager doesn't know. You know, like manager is just—it's a different role when somebody's not in front, and you can say that. And I've heard that a lot, and that's an interesting and probably very true observation. Um, but it also places blame on the managers. Um, and so, somebody in that group had made a really interesting point, which was to back up even further and say, you know what, this is actually a failure of training of managers. Like mm. the managers have only been trained in one way to lead people. And therefore, they only know one way to lead people. And what we really need to do is now start thinking about how different can lead, can we train managers? And I apply this to, to what you're describing here too, right? Which is like, I, I bet that there are a lot of church leaders who, who believe very deeply. And again, I'm not saying that you're wrong. You're probably right, that the best way to serve people is in person. But if that's not how people want to connect right now, uh, or that's not the only way, or they just don't have the time. They also agree with you. It would be great to come but they just don't have the time anymore. Well, then then, uh, the only person that you're serving um, is uh, yourself in trying to get these people back. And also, what is the problem? Look, it's not even you. I don't mean this to be selfish, but we need to come up with different ways to train leaders so that those leaders can then engage people in different ways. And if you are not willing to meet people where they are, then you only do one thing, which is that you lose relevance relevancy to them. I mean, it's it's just it's just simply the only thing that happens. Um I, I mean look, uh, uh, you know, again, to take it back to to my area of the world a little bit more is is you know, these conversations about should people be in the office and a really fascinating conversations with leaders who had moved to a four-day work week. Mm-hmm. So, uh, a four day work week is what used to be a crazy idea that was only engaged in academic circles. And, uh, and, and then like, at a, you know, then like post pandemic and everyone has quit their jobs and is saying that they, they have different expectations now for work or rather they always had those expectations, but they didn't think that they would be fulfilled. And now they do that. Um, um, that uh, they don't want to come back to the office. And so ex- companies are now experimenting with this four-day work week, which used to be a crazy idea. Now, what's really interesting is that many companies have found that if they shift to a four-day work week, they, uh, and they do it smartly, it takes time, they actually can maintain the same level of productivity over four days than five days. But about a year in, you'll hear a problem. And the problem goes like this. People will say, I don't feel as connected to my colleagues as I used Ooh. to. Now, what are you to do with that? Well, here's the thing. I think that if we are, we are, we are, we tend to ask this question of things, of new things. And that question is, is this perfect? Now, I can imagine a lot of church leaders are looking at um, connecting people virtually and they're saying, is this perfect? No. It's not perfect, it's not as good, as having everybody in person. And so then we say, well, if it's not perfect, then we shouldn't pursue it. But here's the problem, nothing is perfect. So if you ask, is this perfect of any new thing? The answer is no, it's not perfect. And now you are going to discard that new thing. And so the better question to ask, and this is what I think you should start asking, what I think church leaders, what every leader of every kind of organization should be asking of every new thing is is our new problem better than our old problem? That's a that's a, it's a mm. much better question. Is our new problem better than our old problem, right? Because I'll tell you, I mean, like, to go back to churches, again, not my area of expertise, but building off of what you've just said, right, if the, if the old problem is church attendance is in decline, then, well, what happens if you mix in-person attendance with some sort of virtual connection as just a starting point, right? Well is this new problem better than my old problem? I kind of think that it is because now you have increased the ways in which you are able to reach people and engage people. There are going to be problems. There will be problems. But now you can start solving those better problems. And the solutions that you will be driven towards will also have problems. But this is how we track progress. We track it through problems, not through perfection.
0: Oh, I'm taking notes because uh, we're six months into the four-day work week, and I lead a virtual company. So that'll Mm -hmm. be very interesting. We're all gathering here next week for our third in-person of the year, but uh, taking notes. And I love your framing of your needs versus other needs. I've always thought about the needs of the organization versus the mission, but Mm -hmm. I really love that framing of, are you focused on your needs or the needs of other people? That's even clearer. Mm. I, I I can't resist. I got to go to the debate about in-person, like return to the office versus oh, yeah. hybrid work or remote work. Where is that dialogue, you know, at the end of 2022, 2023? Because you seem to be at the heart of it. I read from the headlines, but I love, because I see that raging with my corporate friends, with church people, church people, definitely like everyone back in the office seems to be the default. What, yeah.
1: Where is that landing in the business community? So I think we're, we are still, uh, but but maybe hopefully at the tail end of it just being a big, like a big blinding flash, <laughs> right? Um, which is to say there's been a big change and everybody can see that there's a change, but it looks like one big mass. And what will eventually happen is this thing that happens with all changes, which is that that like big blinding flash will will fade. And you will start to see the nuances because, because this change is not one thing. This changes many things. And in the case, I I mean, a a perfect example is, is that um, a lot of companies are now finding that, you know, it's not that all of their employees don't want to come back to the office. It's that their older employees don't want to come back to the office. Younger Mm -hmm. employees actually do, because for people in their twenties in particular, the office is a source of social connection. Certainly mm-hmm. was for me when I was in my 20s uh, and in my early 30s, uh, where the, the, the greatest friends that I made of that time were people that I worked with. And then we would go, you know, then we would go to the bar after, after work. And, um, and uh, 20-somethings, a lot of them know that and they miss that. Uh, I mean, I have a friend at Spotify who's very senior at Spotify. Um, so he's in, a, you know, he's in his forties. He doesn't want to go back to the office, <laughs> but but his twenty-year-old colleagues do. Um, and so now we have now we have an, a really important distinction, right? Which is that it's not that everybody doesn't want to come back; it's that some people don't want to come back based on their life experience. Uh, me personally, uh, I'm 42. I don't want to go to an office I, yeah. I, at all. Yeah, um, I don't either. Yeah, I I'm mean, older I, than you. <laughs> and and right and it's like, for probably the same reason right like we already have our social networks and um we know how to self-motivate and we know what we're doing and we're also we've reached a stage in our life where we are more autonomous than we were in our 20s um and so there's just no reason to be in an office There's just none and i am grateful that uh, entrepreneur actually got rid of its office so there's nobody ever is going to ask me to come back to an office but um but but I, I think that w- what we will what we need to come to is um is a level of sophistication about understanding people's needs at a more granular level. And once we do that, we can start to uh figure out how to accommodate those needs and how to make the best of everybody. I I, I talked to this guy, uh, what was his name? Justin Mitchell, who's the CEO and founder of a company called Yak. they make YAC, they make uh, um, asynchronous meeting software. So in other words, like, you know, how to how to have a meeting without everybody in the meeting at the same time. Oh, and cool. um, yeah, it's cool. It's basically, it's through like voice memos and stuff. So um, uh, anyway, he said, he made this really great point, which was like, look, everybody works differently. Uh, some people are most productive in the morning, Some people are night owls, and their best work is going to happen between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. And we are really doing them and the organization a disservice by making all of those people work the same way. Uh, It doesn't make sense if you want to get the best out of your people. It does not make sense to gather a group of people who are naturally going to have different styles of work and then make them work at the same time why would we do that It just doesn't make sense right um and so um uh and so and and look, this is you know this is very much what i encourage with my team i mean i i run a fairly asynchronous team i mean you know we're all on Mostly on the East Coast of uh, the United States, so we're we're mostly working the same hours. But you know, I don't. If I send somebody a message, I don't care if they get back to me immediately. I don't care if they're out with their kids or at the dentist or or working on a side project. I don't care as long as they get their work done because they're going to get their work done when it gets when it is best for them. And therefore, if it's best for them, it's going to be best for me. Um, that's what we need to start to get to. And what does that look like on a grand scale? It looks like not 2019 and not 2022, but it looks like extracting some of the best of both of those times and combining them along with things that we're going to learn along the way.
0: Yeah, that was sort of my next question, too, because I have a very similar approach with the distributed team. It's like, I I tell them, I don't care if you work at 2 a.m. hanging upside down, just get your work done and be at the meetings that we agree on, which are not that frequent. So, you know, a lot of autonomy. So the return to the office, even for 20-somethings, is that like, eight to four sit at your desk, or does it have more of the flexibility you just hinted at?
1: Like, where, where do you see that going if you're leading young leaders? It's a great question. I think, look, I think that one of the most fascinating things about what will happen with the future of work is that it won't look like any one thing across industry. Um, I think that you'll start to see just very different ideas of what work should be. And, uh, and companies may start competing, not just on salary and benefits, but on work style. Um, and uh, and so I, I see it going in a, in a million different ways. But if, if I was running a large organization right now, and I, and I I am not, right? I mean, entrepreneurs are a fairly small organization. But if I was running a really large organization, um, I think that what I would start to do, it, I think my starting point would be um, doing some really deep survey and interview work on my, on my employees, thinking of them as a representative sample of future employees Hmm. and asking them what they want and what they need and what they're missing right now. Um, and then start to experiment with solutions. Uh, it could be, for example, that people don't want to be back in an office all day, every day. And it could be that when they do come back into the, like, you know, you'll see this on TikTok all the time. I mean, I've seen like, I've seen I, I, dozens of things that are exactly like this. It's always the same video. Um, young worker, uh, the caption is like, come back to the office, they said. It'll be fun, they said. And then it's just them, right? Like in a, in a, <laughs> like in a room, in an empty room, you know? Um, and, uh, and so, right, like, because the problem here is that Nobody has thought about what happens next when somebody comes back to the office. People don't want to just be in a room. Nobody cares about that, right? People want connection. Yeah. Um so maybe there's a different way to do that. Maybe actually nobody needs an office, but what people do need is um is a uh is a is a sort of collaboration space that everybody goes to you for a certain amount of time, uh, to like work on interesting projects and you segment that, you know, like these, the the kinds of projects that require this collaboration space are going to happen during these times at the collaboration space. Um, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, maybe it's that you save your money on real estate and you spend that money on, um, sort of regular retreats, which again, mm-hmm. I, I, As a guy in my 40s, I don't want regular retreats. I don't want them. I have kids that was very disruptive to my work. I don't want to be traveling around unless somebody's paying me a large amount of money to speak to them, which is the reason I travel. So, um, (laughs) but, uh, but like... But like for 20-somethings, when I was in my 20s, I would love regular retreats. Let's do it. It'll be fun. We'll you know we'll build camaraderie. We'll come up with great ideas. So maybe what we really need is to just start thinking more about individuals and start to come up with some systems and experiment.
0: Well, uh, the time is flying on this conversation, and it's been delightful, Jason. But um, you hint at in your book, you talk about the future of publishing. Yeah. So... You know, I'm, I'm going to mangle this. I'll let you talk about okay. it. But the quote is something like, I think uh, magazines should get out of the content business, which is really interesting. So please nuance that so it's accurate. And then tell us about, because, I mean, in many ways, you look at, okay, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, amazing. It is a great magazine. But yeah, if you want to look at an industry that's just bleeding out over the last 15 years, Ugh. look at publishing. So- yeah. Like, what's going on? And how are you carving out a future?
1: So, uh, uh, it's, I appreciate the question. It's totally true. Uh, the, the media, if you want to find a case study for like an industry that just did not prepare despite all warning signs, look at media. It's awful. Um, and uh, so, okay, here's the thing. I think that we all, this is not a publishing, an- I'll start with a non-publishing answer and then I'll use publishing as an example. I think that we all, Need to ask ourselves this question of everything that we do. The question is this: What is this for? What is it for? What role does it serve? Does it serve a role? Individual actions, ways that we're structuring things. What is this for? Um, you better have a good answer to that question. And you know, and the reason why you should keep asking it is because the answer will evolve. Uh, so. You know, I mean, I'll give you an example, uh, which is publishing. So people ask me, it's, you know, it's funny, I'll travel around and I'll speak to these companies about how to adapt, and then somebody will inevitably, in the Q&A, raise their hand and they'll be like, okay, adaption guy, but you run a print magazine. Um, So, you know, high from the 1940s, like, what (laughs) is up with that, you know? Um, And... And the answer, my answer is, okay, so look, you ask the question, what is it for of the things that you do? And then you have to take the answers really seriously. And when I ask the question, what is a print magazine for, or even more broadly, what is content for? Well, if I was asking that question decades ago, pre-internet, the answer was really clear. Content was for monetization. So you, there were two primary ways to make money off of content. You could sell ads against it and you could sell subscriptions to it. And uh, that, those were good businesses. Mm. Now, those are hard businesses. Very, very hard businesses. People that, you know, like... Uh, I, I, I'm sure that there's an overlapping uh, chart of uh, of uh, 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 like magazine subscriptions and church attendance, right? Um, <laughs> Some Venn diagrams yeah, in the middle, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a sweet spot, yeah. right? So, yeah. Um, so uh, that's you know, you say that's a problem, um, and then if, and then it's harder to sell advertisements into it. And this is not an entrepreneur problem. This is a all media problem um, because we're we're fighting over uh, all media is now fighting over a very small slice of a pie. Uh, because the majority of that pie is being eaten by Google and Facebook so, um, so and TV. So what are we to do? Well, let's ask the question, what is content for if it's not for monetization? And the answer that I have, at least, is that content is for relationships. It's for something. It's for relationships. Because people trust you because of content. They like you because of content. They keep coming back because of content. And they will buy products and services from you because they trust you because of the content. And that, I think, has to be the way forward for media uh, where you stop thinking about content as the thing that is the backbone of your business, right? Like, you know, you, you were right when you said we need to get out of the content business because we can't be in the content business. Like, the business can't be content, uh, right? You think of Red Bull. Red, Red Bull if you care about extreme sports, right? If you love people who jump out of airplanes and who um like do crazy surfing, Red Bull is your place. They they have a magazine, they have amazing videos, they have endless events. Um do they make money off of that content? I I I don't know. I would guess they lose money. I don't know. But um but but I know that where they do make their money is energy drinks. And people buy those energy drinks because they feel connected to Red Bull because of the content. So that's how we need to start thinking. And that's how everybody needs to start thinking. What is the thing that you're doing really playing as a role in your ecosystem? Once you start asking those questions, you start to get illuminative but uncomfortable answers, and you better take those seriously. So at at Entrepreneur, we're now, you know, trying to build out a, a, a product suite uh where you know what kind of services can we offer we're at the very early stages of this. It's hard to turn a ship around. But um I I think that it's the project. Like if you don't if we don't figure that out, and again, this is not an entrepreneur thing, if every media company does not figure that out for themselves, then they are dead.
0: Hmm. Well and I'll be anxious to see where that goes. You hint at it in your book if if people want more on that. And I'm sure we can follow along with the story. But you're right. I mean you have incredible brand Awareness. Uh, anybody who's got an entrepreneurial gene in their body knows about Entrepreneur Magazine. And then, what do you do with it, other than just you know so slide popularity. into obscurity, yeah. right? right? Which is which is so important. <laughs> Jason, the time has flown. This has been a delight. So, before we Thank wrap you. up, tell us uh, you're into podcasts. You're editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. So, give us some places where we can discover more of you online, and tell us about the book.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I, I really, really appreciate it. What, what a great conversation. Um, so uh, the book, again, is called Build for Tomorrow. It is available in every format you want, except for stone tablet. We haven't gotten there yet. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, ebook, audiobook, uh, hardcover, you can get it on Amazon or look for it in your you know airport bookstore i i love popping into airport bookstores and signing them um, or wherever or barnes and noble whatever wherever you find books or audiobooks or ebooks you can find build for tomorrow so I, that's what i would really recommend um checking out and then if you you know if, if anybody wants to get in touch with me um, directly or or you know get more in touch if you go to my website jasonfeifer.com and particularly slash newsletter you can subscribe to my newsletter and um uh, it's a lot of what we talked about here and more um but uh i you know and, and retail out. Um, I'm super responsive. But, you know, Carrie, I really appreciate your time. It's been, it's been really uh, great. I
0: really appreciate this. You know, you have expectations of certain interviews, and this one, uh, it elevated when I read the book and then uh, elevated even more in the conversation. So, this Thank has you. been a delight. Thank you so much. And thanks for making me uh, think in new categories. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Oh, I, I, uh, no greater uh, compliment. Thank you. I really found that
0: interesting, and uh, Build for Tomorrow is a fantastic book. You know, I I said to uh, Jason, my goodness, you know, I read a lot of books, and it's like, it was just so refreshing to have a book where I really don't think I had heard many of the stories at all before that he tells, and he's an excellent writer, obviously. If you want more, you can find it in the show notes, and you'll find that at kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 540 we will take care of you there we also have transcripts if you want to dig a little bit deeper and we've got a killer lineup for 2023 coming up but first i want to take you to the last episode of this year adam duckworth returns and well we also talk about rebuilding a decimated industry so if you're still struggling because of everything that's happened man we got your back covered here is an excerpt from the next episode
1: I assume, I don't know this number, but I assume because of what what I'm hearing that 20% of their people even don't complete training because they don't want to
0: go through it because they were used to kind of sitting at home for so long. And because that is true, one of the biggest struggles, and I've talked with executives about this and we've had this dialogue, is one of the biggest struggles that Disney has had since they've reopened is maintaining the levels of cast that they need to to operate their parks. It is their number one challenge, no doubt. And of course, if you subscribe, you will not miss a thing. You will also not miss 2023, because here's who's coming up. Going to kick it off with James Clear. I just did that interview. It is killer. So if you want to talk about Atomic Habits, uh, actually, we spend more time talking about the making of Atomic Habits and how he became James Clear. Fascinating. Also, Ted's Chris Anderson, Annie F. Downs. Tim Keller, Andy, and Sandra Stanley. Who else have we got? We've got Caitlin Beatty, Richard Blackaby, John Mark Comer, Erwin McManus, Andy Wood, and a whole lot more coming up next year. Oh, and did I say Mark Sayers is back as well? And the way you make sure you don't miss anything is by subscribing. For all of you who are leaving ratings and reviews, can I just say thank you? Thank you so much for doing that, getting the word out about this show really helps us to continue doing what we're doing and get top tier guests like the list I just uh, shared with you. So I want to give you something for listening. If you like this episode, in addition to leaving a rating and review, uh, I've got something that will help you grow your online influence. I call it the Influence Kickstarter. And you can go to influencekickstarter.com. So maybe you're trying to do a better job with your email list. We talk a lot about email lists here. Why? Because it's the single best way, even in 2023, to communicate with the people that you serve. And um, it's provided by my Art of Leadership Academy. So if you want an introduction to that, this is a free free mastermind. And you can simply go to influencekickstarter.com where you can register today. And of course, if you want to jump on over to the academy, we are having a fantastic party with, uh, well, we're pushing 2000 leaders now in the Art of Leadership Academy. And I'll tell you, it is a great space. So make sure you check that out. Thank you so much for listening. We're back with a final episode of the year next week. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.